Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 9 together. If you have your Bible, uh, turn in that, or you can follow along in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, there's also Bibles in the back. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you that your word is a sure and indeed the only guide to faith and practice that we can rely on as our ultimate authority. Father, thank you that uh, you've brought us all together this morning, that there's good health uh, among those who are here. Father, I pray that you'd be with those who can't be with us this morning because they're sick. I pray that you would uh, uh, give them health and that they'd be back with us soon. Father, thank you for other churches in the local area that are uh, also gathered in your name this morning. I think of uh, friends over at Columbus Bible Chapel, Father. I thank you that, that they are um, a gospel witness in their community there in Powell. I pray that you would be with them this morning and that uh, they would honor and glorify you. But Father, I pray that you'd be with us here in this room. I pray that you would calm our minds and clear them. I pray that you would help us for just a little while to put aside all the concerns from outside this room Focus on your word and what you have for us here. Father, I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly and that I'd be able to communicate uh, what you've laid on my heart and what you've taught me in this passage. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd also be with us uh, later in the service as we come to the Lord's table. And I pray that something of what we learn in this passage would help us uh, meditate on Christ and what he's done for us uh, that we remember in the table. I pray that everything that's said and done and the rest of this service would honor and glorify you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now I saw 
upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he was wont, reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before crying, what shall I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run, yet he stood still because as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, who asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicked gate? The man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life, life, eternal life. This is a selection from the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, by John Bunyan. In this book, John Bunyan tells the story of a man named Christian. And Christian's been reading in a book that he's living in a, a city that will be destroyed. The city is conveniently named for those of us who have a hard time following plots, the city of destruction. <laughs> and, and, and Pilgrim learns about a city called the Celestial City, and he needs to flee to the Celestial City, and, and he doesn't know the way, and he encounters various characters along his way. But, but Bunyan calls this book The Pilgrim's Progress. What is a pilgrim? A pilgrim is someone going from one place to another place. A pilgrim might encounter a lot of difficulty along the road. There might be storms, uh, there might be sickness, there might be thieves. Uh, and this pilgrim even encounters a dragon or two. But the pilgrim always draws his strength by keeping his destination in mind. Over and over throughout this book, the pilgrim will remind himself and his fellow travelers that they're on their way to the celestial city, and so all the hardship that they're going through is worth it. Peter, in his letter, as we've already discussed uh, in our times together when we've been studying this book, Peter addresses his readers as pilgrims. He opens the letter by calling them strangers scattered, or as some translations have it, exiles. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, he calls us, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims. He describes this pilgrim way as one filled with manifold temptations. That was in our reading in verse 6. He calls it in chapter 4 a fiery trial. Later in chapter 4, he warns us that we are to be prepared to be partakers of Christ's suffering. And this echoes the words that you might remember from Jesus, very familiar words, in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this about the pilgrim way. He says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. 
Peter knows that this pilgrim way is filled with danger and filled with trouble. And so at the beginning of his letter here, he lays down certain basic principles that will help his readers as they travel this pilgrim way. In verse 2, we already talked about how Peter grounds his, his readers, these exiles, these pilgrims. He grounds their hope uh, in the fact that the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worked together to accomplish their salvation. And now in verses 3 through 5, which is where we'll focus our time this morning, Peter outlines the pilgrim path. He begins by talking about the new birth, and he takes us all the way to the eternal state. Peter points the pilgrim, he points us, to our final destination, the heavenly inheritance. And he tells us to fix our eye on that. This brings us to the first blank in our outline. We are born again unto a living hope. If you want to follow, again, follow along in the outline, the blank there is the word unto. See, Peter begins by talking about the beginning of the pilgrim path here in verse 3. Blessed be, God and fa- blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. This phrase, begotten us again, it comes from a single Greek word that appears also in verse 23 of chapter 1. Uh, at the beginning it says, being born again. It just means born again. Born again. That's a phrase that you hear some use in the culture. What does it mean to be born again? You might have heard some people use the phrase born again Christian. Uh, as if that's a species of Christian. You have your regular Christians and then your born again Christians. But how does the Bible use the term? Let's turn to John chapter 3 together. John chapter 3. This is Jesus speaking with Nicodemus, and he tells us some things about this new birth. He uses the term born again. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Jesus answered and said unto him, to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, Jesus explains in this chapter that the new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The, the, the new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying here in verse 3 that unless we are born again, we cannot even see the kingdom of God. The new birth gives us the ability to see the kingdom of God. It gives us the ability to comprehend the kingdom of God. So this brings us to a very important question, which is, have you been born again? Have you experienced the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life? There's some questions to ask yourself. Do you love the church? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you see in your life any of the fruits of the Spirit, any evidence of the Spirit, any works of righteousness? Not that they save you, but they are evidence. These are all things that the Apostle John, in his first epistle, points us to, to tell whether we've been born again. And notice, I didn't ask, are you a church member? I didn't ask, did you pray a prayer when you were eight years old? 
I didn't ask if you were baptized. I said, what Jesus says here, are you born again? Do you know that there are some who appear to walk the pilgrim path who are not true pilgrims? There's a couple of individuals that pilgrim encounters, Christian encounters, on his pilgrim way. And we might recognize these folks, maybe in ourselves. And as he was troubled thereabout, he espied two men come tumbling over the wall on the left hand of the narrow way. And they made up a pace to him. The name of the one was formalist, and the name of the other, hypocrisy. So, as I said, they drew up unto him, who thus entered with them into discourse. Christian says, Gentlemen, whence came you, and whither go you? We were born in the land of vain glory, and are going for praise to Mount Zion. Why came you not in at the gate, which standeth at the beginning of the way? Know you not that it is written that he that cometh not in by the door, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber? They said that to go to the gate for entrance was, by all their countrymen, counted far too far about, and that therefore their usual way was to make a shortcut of it and to climb over the wall, as they had done. Christian, but will it not be counted a trespass against the Lord of the city, whither we are bound, thus to violate his revealed will? Formalist and hypocrisy. They told him that as for that, he needed not to trouble his head thereabout, for what they did, they had custom for, and could produce, if need were, testimony that would witness it for more than a thousand years. But, said Christian, will your practice stand trial at law? They told him that custom, it being of so long a standing as above a thousand years, would doubtless now be admitted as a thing legal by any impartial judge. And beside, said they, if we get into the way, what's matter which way we get in? If we are in, we are in. Thou art but in the way who, as we perceive, came in at the gate. And we are also in the way that came tumbling over the wall. Wherein now is thy condition better than ours? Formalists and hypocrisy are wondering the gate standing in for the, the way that the master has appointed as the beginning of the pilgrim way, just like Jesus says here that the new birth is the beginning of the pilgrim way. You must be born again, he says. Foremost and hypocrisy say, well, we're, we're walking the way. We've just come in a different way. Why is it that you're better than us? Christian says, I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude working of your fancies. You are counted thieves already by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt you will not be found true men at the end of the way. You come in by yourselves without his direction and shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. So again, I ask you, are you born again? Being born again is the beginning of the path. Jesus says, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. It's the start, the beginning of the pilgrim path, but it's only the beginning. Uh, that brings us to our next uh, uh, point, let, capital letter A. The first cause of the new birth is the Father's mercy. Let's look at a, three different things that, that uh, the apostle tells us about the new birth as he's describing it here. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. Notice it doesn't say, according to our good works, he hath begotten us again. Notice it doesn't say, according to our baptism, he hath begotten us again. It doesn't say, according to our faith, he hath begotten us again. It says, according to his abundant mercy 
hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His abundant mercy is the cause, the first cause of the new birth. Our next point in our outline is, is capital B. The means of the new birth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is an interesting phrase. It says, God hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How is it that Jesus' resurrection is the means by which we are born again? Put simply, Jesus' death was a payment, and his resurrection, which is here identified as the source of the new birth, his resurrection proves that the payment was accepted. Ephesians 1.14 refers to us as a purchased possession, refers to believers as a purchased possession. The same chapter tells us Christ purchased or redeemed us through his blood. The penalty standing before us according to the scripture, was eternal death in a place called hell. Why is it eternal? You ever thought about that? Why is hell eternal? It's eternal because sin is treason against the king of kings. Think about it this way. Even in our flawed legal system, we recognize gradation of punishment based on the status of the one offended. If I commit an assault against an ordinary person, I'm going to spend some time in jail. If I commit an assault against the President of the United States, I will likely spend much longer in jail. And that's true for God as well. God is, is the sovereign of the universe. He's infinite. He is infinitely more worthy than the President of the United States. He's infinitely more valuable, more, uh, he's higher, he's the most high. And so, Offending the infinite leads to an eternal punishment for finite beings. The Bible says that the punishment is eternity in hell, a place of unending darkness, flame, and torment. Finite creatures such as ourselves, even given eternity, cannot pay for treason against the infinite God. And so, the infinite God comes to earth. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, took on flesh to redeem flesh. He didn't deserve the cross, but each step he took on this earth brought him one step closer to it. Was this the only way? Was this the only way by which the Father... That's, that's what we're, we're asking. We're asking the question, how is it that Jesus' resurrection is the means by which the Father grants us the new birth? So is this the only way that the Father could grant us the new birth? I want us to think about Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. In this chapter, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And on that black night... Jesus stared into a cup that was placed before him. And the cup was filled with every vile and despicable act of murder and theft and dishonesty and sexual immorality. Every, act, every word of blasphemy, every impure thought you've ever had and sinful action you've ever done. 
And that's what this cup was filled with. And it was pressed to the lips of the most holy one who had no sin. And he says in verse 39 of Matthew 26, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But the only possible way to pay the infinite penalty was for the eternal, infinite Son to bear it. And so he went to the cross and shed his blood. They took his dead body down off the cross and buried it in a tomb. Was the payment that he offered accepted? See, the Bible tells us in Romans 6, 26, that the wages of sin is death. The just reward that you deserve for sin is death. And so if Jesus' body had remained in the tomb, then we would know that he deserved death, that he had received the wages he deserved, that there was some sin that he had taken on himself, something was in that cup that he couldn't quite atone for. But he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose out of the tomb. The grave couldn't hold him. And by the grave couldn't hold him, I don't just mean that the, the stone tomb couldn't hold him. I mean that the realm of death, uh, the, 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 the Hebrew word is the word sheol, the realm of death couldn't hold Christ because it had no legal claim on him. This infinite being had come and had completely expiated, completely propitiated for and, and gotten rid of the sins that were laid on him. And so there was a being in the grave that had no reason to be there. The sin that had been laid on him was gone. We've said this so many times. This is a, a, one of the most familiar verses. And for me, it's one of the most comforting. The Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul says that he made him, God the Father, made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That was the great exchange. Jesus took our sin and he destroyed it and gave us his righteousness that he earned, that he merited from living a perfect life. The grave couldn't hold him. Had no right. And so he rose from the dead on the third day. And that tells us that his payment was effective. And so that's why the Apostle Peter in our text in verse 3 says that we are born again, we are begotten again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection. If Christ be not raised, then we are of all men to be most pitied. The resurrection wasn't a reality. Um, then we're wasting our time this morning. But it was a reality. Um, and Peter the author of our epistle here was a witness to that. Now, because of this redemption, because of this purchase, this accepted payment, we have communion with God and he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Like we said in Ephesians, we're referred to as a purchased possession. That chapter tells us that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. That includes the blessing that we're focusing on here, the new birth. That's how God gave us the new birth is through this accepted payment of Christ. This brings us to our third uh, letter here, letter C. The purpose of the new birth is a living hope. Peter tells us that we are begotten again unto a living hope or a lively hope is the way it is here in the text. A living hope. So the cause of the new birth is the Father's mercy. The means by which he gives us the new birth is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. 
And the purpose of the new birth is so that we might set our sights on this living hope. See, God sets us on a path and he points us to the living hope, the celestial city in Bunyan's words. This takes us to Roman numeral two. Our living hope is our future inheritance. See, Peter's description of our inheritance here in verse four is a further explanation of what the living hope is. Verse four, he says, to an inheritance, so, so we're begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection, to an inheritance, the inheritance is just a further explanation of what the living hope is, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Remember, Peter is turning our attention here to our living hope, but he just told us that it was by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus died for us. We don't deserve this inheritance. He, he, he teaches us, he reminds us of the resurrection of Christ to disabuse us of any idea that we might deserve this inheritance uh, in some sort of an earthly way. But Peter puts us on this path. He points our eye to the inheritance, and then he tells us four things about it. And let's just look at them very quickly here. To an inheritance incorruptible. Everything in this world is corruptible. People grow old. People die. Uh, plants die. Animals die. Nations deteriorate. Monuments eventually crumble, even if slowly. Nothing here is continuing. Hebrew, the author of the Hebrews tells us we have here no continuing city. Nothing lasts on this earth. Everything is corruptible. Everything is subject to decay but not the inheritance in heaven. The next blank is undefiled to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. The inheritance itself is undefiled and setting our hope on it will not defile us. Any inheritance that we receive in this world is going to be tainted in some way by fraud or dishonesty, by covetousness or infighting. Everything in this world is tainted with sin, but not this inheritance and and not the uh, setting our hope on this inheritance will not defile us. It's not a form of covetousness. The apostle tells us to set our hope there. Now, Matthew chapter 6 is interesting because Jesus says some of these, some similar things about, uh, about where we should place uh, our hope. He says in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus tells us to make sure that our treasure is in a place where it cannot be corrupted, where it cannot be defiled. What's the next thing he tells us? to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. The blank there, you can say unfading or fadeth not away. You know, I was thinking about this, fadeth not away, the idea of being unfading as compared to the idea of being incorruptible. And they're getting at a similar idea, but from a slightly different angle. If incorruptible means that it cannot be, uh, that it cannot deteriorate, it cannot break down, it cannot wear out. Fadeth not away, I think the best way to, to capture that idea is to think of, uh, Christmas toys. Um, the brilliance of our inheritance in heaven will never grow old. Um, you, the, the brilliance of a Christmas toy fadeth away long before it actually deteriorates or wears out. And that's the same way with our inheritance. Our inheritance 
will not deteriorate, but it will also never lose its shine for us. And then this last one, reserved in heaven for you. The blank there can be reserved to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. These two words, reserved and in heaven, emphasize to us the future nature of our inheritance. Our inheritance is not on this perishable earth. It's in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God has reserved it for us. Now we have hope in this inheritance because we have a down payment. Do you know that? Do you know we have God's given us a deposit, a first down payment, a guarantee, a pledge of the inheritance to come? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, again, tells us that we are sealed. Chapter 1, verse 13 of Ephesians, we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. If you ever purchased a home, you might have put down earnest money. It's a pledge. It's a guarantee that you will give the rest of the money later. The Holy Spirit is the pledge, the guarantee, the deposit of our inheritance. This is the future hope of us as pilgrims. Our hope is not in the world we can see, but in the world we cannot yet see. Hebrews 11 talks about the faith of some Old Testament saints. Speaking of Abraham, it says this in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was a sojourner. He was a pilgrim. He wandered this country looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Skipping down to verse 13, again talking to these Old Testament saints, these saints who have gone before. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country once they came out, Canaan, if they were thinking about Canaan, it says they might have had an opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. If you feel out of place in this world, then recognize and confess with these saints of old that you're a stranger and a pilgrim. Read Peter's letter to the strangers and pilgrims and find comfort in it. But if you never feel out of place, if you love the world and the things of the world, then examine yourself and question most seriously whether you are on the pilgrim way. It's a question of eternal importance. This brings us to Roman numeral three. God has set us on this way and will carry us home. Verse 5 of our text in 1 Peter braces us 
with the promise that the same God who put us on this path with the new birth will carry us home. Verse five, who, speaking of us, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I, when, I, when I read the we're kept by the power of God, the first thing that my mind went to was, was John chapter 10. And, and it's, it's John chapter 10 and verses 27 and 28. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Uh, there's a quote that I've, uh, I love that I've probably set up here before, but it, I believe it's R.C. Sproul. He said that we are not saved because we cling tightly to Christ, but because Christ clings tightly to us. God keeps us by his power. The next blank is God keeps us through faith. See, when God gives us new birth, he does not immediately take us out of the world. While here, we are kept through the gift of faith. And what does Hebrews tell us? That faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God keeps us through faith. Finally, the last blank there is God keeps us unto salvation. This brings, again, it brings our attention to the future nature of salvation. See, in one sense, we can say that we are saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. We are saved. But in a very real sense, we are not yet saved, any of us. Because when you think of the word saved, you have to think, well, what are you saved from? You know, Alex over here on the fire department, he might save someone from a car wreck, a fire. You're saved from something. What are we saved from? Let's listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. He says, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. We shall be saved from wrath. What does Peter say here? It says, He's going to keep us unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In the last time when God brings his wrath, his judgment on the earth. That is what we will be saved from. The Apostle Paul again in Romans 13, 11, he says, Now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. That's true of all of us. Salvation is nearer. We don't know when it will come. Could be soon. Could be a long time from now but we do know it's nearer. And so in verse 5, we understand that God is keeping us and will save us from the judgment that he brings on the last day. God sets us on the pilgrim way when he breathes into us the breath of life, the breath of new life in the new birth. He will carry us through this life until we reach our inheritance. Until then, Keep your eyes fixed on the destination. You've been born again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Your inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled. It fadeth not away. It is reserved in heaven for you. God will keep you by his power through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. I'm going to close by just reading the words of an old bluegrass gospel song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. 
The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. O Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant, Peter, and the letter that he wrote to the strangers and pilgrims scattered throughout Asia Minor. Father, thank you that Peter's words continue to encourage strangers and pilgrims and exiles scattered throughout the entire world. Thank you that you've continued to use your servant Peter to feed your sheep. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we go uh, into this time of uh, meditation on what Christ has done for us in the Lord's Supper. pray that this would be a time where we can again, slow down and think for just a little bit longer about what Christ did for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.